the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, golden contrails of Malati spangled across the sky like stars. Deck the halls of bleak November with visions of sugar plums and exploding spaceships. Plus part 34 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Coming up, we have an interview with Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, the creators of the Leaden Universe. Sharon and Steve will be talking about their new Leaden novel, Trade Secret, that's out this month in hardcover. That interview is being conducted by stalwart associate editor and mega Leaden Universe fan, Laura Haywood Corey. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. But first, associate editor Laura Haywood Corey joins me for the news. November is upon us. Thanksgiving. Black Friday. My birthday. Really, you don't have to get me anything, Laura. That's good to know. But if you were looking for a gift for, say, your favorite science fiction fans for the holidays, we have a great new collection out. This is a science fiction-oriented Christmas and holiday-themed anthology of stories, and it's called A Cosmic Christmas to You. That one is edited by Bain Editor Emeritus Hank Davis. It has science fiction Christmas stories, both old and new, reprints of great stories from the past, as well as new stories by Bain authors. Yep, it has a story by Sarah Hoyt and one by Wynne Spencer. That story of Wynne's is really mind-bending, too. I really love it. You have a story in this anthology, too, don't you? I do. It's called And To All A Good Night, first Christmas story I've ever written. It's a great collection, good news stuff, and stories by Frederick Pohl, Joe Haldeman, and lots more. Pick up one for uh, the National Tony Daniel Birthday Commemoration. Or the holidays. Or the holidays. A Cosmic Christmas to You, edited by Hank Davis, is now at booksellers everywhere. Check it out. So with us on the podcast today, we have Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Together, they've published 18 novels of science fiction and fantasy, and more than three dozen shorter works, garnering a number of awards as well as invitations as guests of honor and special guests at science fiction conventions from coast to coast in the U.S. and Canada. Very shortly, they embark on a tour of New England to promote the latest Leaden Universe novel, Trade Secret, and will be at PhilCon November 8 through 10. You can check Bain.com in the Author Appearances section for a full list of their bookstore and convention stops. And you can find complete bios, Leaden series suggested reading orders, and more on the author's website, corval.com, K-O-R-V-A-L.com. So welcome, Sharon and Steve. Hi, Laura. Hi, Laura. Trade Secret follows directly from Balance of Trade, but you've woven in enough backstory that it's possible to read Trade Secret first without reading Balance of Trade. How do you make sure that new readers can get the necessary information while also holding the interest of longtime fans of the series? That that's a real that's a real talent. Well, <clears throat> pardon me. Thank you. Uh, one of the ways we do it is that the story should run should run itself. 
when you have a story that you need to keep pulling stuff out of other places in order to explain things, then the story is probably not not strong enough as as is, and it, it shouldn't be that way. We have a lot of backstory. At the same time, the characters, where they need to, can refer to it uh, or refer to parts of it in order to, to make things happen. In the case of Trade Secret, there are a number of family issues that Jethri went through. It's reasonable for him to think back about them, or at least, and in some cases, talk about them. And with, at least he's not there anymore. <laughs> yes, and and so a, a little bit of hint and a little bit of action uh, is enough to, to refer to it without over without it being overbearing. And if somebody has enough interest, they'll go back in the fine balance of trade and say, what what's the rest of this story? But it, we we try not to make it so that it's uh, some uh, so involved that that you can't read from word one and just read the book. The the other trick that we do is that um, we'll have character live through a scene in a previous book, and then it's related in another book from a character who by a character who either wasn't there or from a different viewpoint. So that um, kind of avoids the info dump the info dump aspect of it. Well, I thought that was very well done because Balance of Trade was one that I had not read before and I read Trade Secret first and it was pretty much as you said. I went back and then read Balance of Trade to pick up all the nuances that uh, I missed in Trade Secret. But Trade Secret was fine as a standalone and I think you guys did an excellent job with it. Super. (laughs) Our editor said we did a good job, Steve. (laughs) Yay, yes. So Jethry's story is a coming-of-age tale, and he has to find a way to live with his dual heritage. And I was wondering, you've written so many stories from an inside insider's perspective of the Leaden universe. How was it to kind of flip around and write from Jethry's perspective as an outsider looking in and having to learn so much all at once? Well, that was, going back to Balance of Trade, that was a deliberate um a deliberate choice because we try to, with the series, the universe being so long and having so many books, we try every so often to write a portal book, a book that you can read in the Leading universe that you didn't have to, re- you don't have to read anything else. You can come to it absolutely cold. And we decided that um, one of the best ways to do that is to not only have a naive character, but for a change, um, tell the story from a Terran point of view. So he is explaining absolutely everything as he learns it. The reader doesn't have to feel dumb or lost. Jeffrey feels dumb and lost, but that's okay. He's a character in a book. Um, so we, we deliberately did that um, for Balance of Trade. And Trade Secret, of course, he's still learning. I think, too, that uh, <clears throat> pardon me, the uh, Jeffrey story had originally come out of a, a shorter piece. And we, at that point, had been mostly writing uh, the Leighton things as novels and then we were challenged to, to write a short story. Jethry came out and said, hey, me, me, me. <laughs> so we wrote it about him, and it, hey, that helped open up for us uh, any number of other characters who were, let's call them non-standard, that is, the, that weren't the character that, who, who weren't spaceship captains already, who weren't doing that kind of thing. And... Uh, we we came to understand that there were a lot of ways of looking at the universe, and he was one of the early ones that, that did real well by us. 
So another theme that, that runs through Jethro's story, at least the way it seems to me, is that of birth family versus chosen family. And it seems that Jethro is having to walk a line trying to honor them both while becoming his own man. <clears throat> well, yes. That happens and, to everybody. <laughs> yeah. and, and exactly. It does, it, in a lot of ways, it does happen to everybody. And uh, I, I suspect I had uh, several portions of my family understand that my family, uh, as, as so many families these days, uh, had uh, several divorces in it. And so people actually go through this uh, fairly frequently, this what do I choose. Additionally, it's a, a theme that resonates with science fiction and fantasy fans, especially some of the older fans from the days when people would say, well, fans are slans. And they would also say it's a proud and lonely thing to be a fan because a lot of the fanish nerdishness and geekiness was a separation from the quote-unquote real world or mundane world. So some you, you see this in fans who actually sort of choose the I will be at this convention rather than going to my parents' house for Easter. <laughs> and you have to make your own, your own way in that way. So I, I think we were kind of working off of what we knew. You know, that, that, that's a, a rare thing of being able to write, write what you know uh, in a science, an actual what, what you know in a science fiction story. So that's a, that's a very good point. I hadn't thought about it as relation to science fiction fandom before, but that definitely fits. I can see it. Another thing that I was thinking about is the concept of Melanti. It seems to be, depending on... Who, which character it is, it seems to be both a surgically precise scalpel and a bludgeon. <laughs> um, Sharon's laughing. She can answer that. Terrific. <laughs> <laughs> when, when your only tool is a hammer, every problem is a nail. Yes. Um, some people in any culture, some people want to make points. And Melanti in, well, quickly, Melanti is a Leighton concept of... Um, status, and it is constantly changing depending on who's in the room, what you have to accomplish, um, who you know in the room, and their standing. It's, it's equal parts of honor and right action, and honor and right action being different things. Some people see their honor as being an unassailable edifice that um, they don't have to explain, they don't have to even maintain, really. They have this honor and they have this standing. And other people realize that honor and Malanti, that honor is dependent on right action. If you do not act correctly, you can lose your honor. Um, so in, in, in Trade Secret, we have two characters. We have Jeffrey, who is learning Malanti from a very meticulous woman. Um, who very much realizes that right action in, impinges upon her Melanti and she tries strives to act rightly, as Jeffrey does. And then we have a gentleman who believes that because he is who he is through birth and through his mother's standing, that all things will come to him. He has no need to explain his honor. He, he automatically has honor. He is superior to everyone in the room. And that's an enjoyable thing to play off of. I thought the two worked very well contrasting each other. And we were we were conscious we were consciously working with in effect two people in 
uh, equivalent positions because you have the child of a trader and the child of a trader. We have uh, in in both of them working up to the point where they should begin begin uh, moving from depending on the melanti of others to establishing their own strong melanti, their own strong level of uh, relationships and friendships and and it, yeah the, the network in effect and um there there you go it's a direct contrast all the way through in many ways all the way through the book it it is it, sometimes when i read about melanti and other liating customs and vows i'm reminded of something like a japanese tea ceremony I've never been personally through a Japanese uh, tea ceremony, uh, actually, so I'm not sure that I can say yes, of course, uh, other than having watched uh, the, the play with, with Tea House of the August Moon. But part of the thing is, is that yes, we, we the background of, of cultures where uh, people have a certain amount of formality and that, yes, we, we we're familiar with some of those cultures and at, at least through reading. And we know some people who, uh, my, my family has, uh, uh, been married into a family from, uh, Vietnam who was a, um, before the, before the revolution had been in a, a very high house. And many of the things that we see, functional back and they function back and forth and you can say yes this is this is equivalent and this isn't and uh, it gave us something also um extra to play off the uh, the formality oddly enough in many cases does not come from the japanese but rather from the british because it, this goes back to and people who've listened to us before know about our, our fondness for Georgette Hare and the, the Regency romances. It goes back to the European uh, and particularly the, the British uh, interpretation of the European royalty and the, royal, the European separation of cultures and What it means to be a British gentleman. So a lot of it actually was an interpretation of that as well. And as, as to the bells, we have a friend who... Um, had been in, in Thailand, Lou, and Laos. And Laos. That's, that was it, Laos. Some people had been talking to us, and Lou had been with us at that point and, and explaining, as people do sometimes, that the bowels were simply, they were too numerous, they meant too many things. No human culture could possibly have um, created this thing with all this complexity. And Lou said, actually, if you're in Laos, and no matter how deeply you studied, unless you have a native guide, someone who came up in the culture, you are going to get killed. Because, yes, the bowels are that complex. And, and yes, the hand motion means something. And yes, if you were not born to it, and if you were born to it, you will still make mistakes. Uh, the concept is out there. The concept is, in fact, something that we all go through in our day-to-day -day lives, and we have not, we of the Western world at least, have not formalized it. And uh, you, you, can, you can see it, you can see it at government, at government functions, you can see it at private parties, you can see it when 
there is somebody who walks into the room who is bigger than everybody else, who has more Melanti, who has more whatever, uh, and it just happens, you know, and uh, there are people who seem to have, as um, Carolyn Cherry does, C.J. Cherry with her, her, her books where people are personages, um, that's another. That's another example. You, you become above. You become above custom. You you either become above custom, or custom has to has certain. And so a delm has a a higher ranking, and also much more responsibility because a delm's ranking permits a delm to order somebody over the cliff. Uh, well, that's a power, but it's also a responsibility. So another thing that strikes me about Melanti is that it can be both a comfort so that you know what you're supposed to be doing, but can also at the same time be something of a constraint. Yes, and you have to, part of your Melanti has to address whether or not your Melanti will permit you to move outside of your Melanti and do something that's correct or do something that's necessary. Um, Leadens have um, these these ideas, these, these ideals, um, balance in, in which one should be mostly in balance with the rest of one's culture and with life itself. And Leadens often keep debt books in case they've um, knowingly or unknowingly wronged someone. That needs to be brought in balance. Um, if the, the gentleman in trade secret, as a matter of fact, has a, has a very extensive debt book, as I'm recalling it, um, mostly noting down all of the slides to himself, which tells you something else. And and whether or not you need to pay that that slight back, and where where in where do you have uh, the the concept of um, of um, favors and who owes what whom? And boy, that goes back to OBS. Um, and I'm going to drop the name right now that I need it. Uh, but who who owes who owes what? Uh, Corey Doctorow took took that concept and moved it into a recent book. But basically that you you owe favor and you owe you you owe debt, you owe uh, so I for example owe a great debt. Um, my Melanti was improved by my my uh, having met the gentleman named Bob Tucker because Bob Tucker um, saved me at one convention from making some very um, grievous errors. Uh, I was a new fan. I was also barely a pro, and uh, I was at a party, and he took me up alongside the wall and said, hi, how are you doing? Haven't met you before. This is really great to see you. You know, you really don't want to um, – that lady is getting married next week. Ah, good to know. <laughs> okay. It's like – and he pointed out who she was getting married to, who was a professional, and it was like – Whoa! Um, yes, he saved me much grief. He saved many people much grief. Um, so I owed him a I owed him a debt there, but also his Melanti, because he was hosting the particular party. He was, and so there's all kinds of things, all kind of levels there. But and Bob looked out for new fans anyway. He did. Yeah, that was part of his Melanti. That was part of his Melanti. A good thing too. I regret that I did not meet him. A wonderful person, a lot of fun to be around, and uh, he was he was spot on this too. Because again, when somebody walked into the room, he would have a recognition of where do they where do do they fit 
into this room, and you see it in, in Fanish groups where a pro walks into a room and you've got to, people have got to decide what balance is, is there between that person being a pro and everybody else in here being fans or, you know, it's, it's a real strange, it's a real strangeness and we all go through it. It's just not formalized as much as we, we allow the, the, uh, the Aidens to formalize it. Do you think we'd be better off if it were formalized? Well, it would take a lot of um, calculating and um, mindfulness, and many people are against being mindful um, in, in our current culture. Um, they, make, they make unwarranted assumptions of their own, of their own worth, um, which, you know, liaisons also do, but they, they then need to back it up in ways that we don't need, need to back it up in our culture. Okay, so without spoiling anything too much, do you have further plans for Jethrey? Uh, one of the things is, is that we, we, when we first met Jethrey, he was going to be a, um, a one-shot character in a short story. Um, and then he was a one-shot character in a novel. <laughs> and, and, then, and then guess what? Um, he has a series. And well, and, and this this is the situation is that the we've we've developed uh, almost inadvertently a, a number of characters and a number of um, things that are that have a way to go. On the other hand, in the real world, we also have a five book contract into which Jethrey does not fit. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no there's no good way to put a, a Jethrey segment in any of the novels that are due in the next three years, and. Beyond that, we're not trying to. So there could well be another Jeffrey short story. There could be well uh, another incident, uh, you know, a novella or a short story in the interim. But until we're through those, uh, we're not we're not thinking in that direction. That's understood. It's a, as you said, the realities of publishing and contracts. So this is going to sound a bit like, you know, English major literary criticism, but I've always been struck by the name Goblin's Market. And was that a deliberate nod to the Rossetti poem? Um, it was a deliberate nod. I had always, I had always personally wanted to name a spaceship, uh, a trade ship Goblin's Market, um, because it's such a great name. It is. It's a wonderful trade name. Um, and when we were developing Jeffrey Goblin's Market, um, the name of the ship, and I'm like, yes, I can use it now. <laughs> <laughs> we we often like to play, and and we have, uh, <clears throat> for example, with the the uh, character uh, in the current major line, uh, Bishimo, who is a character and also a spaceship. Uh, people have suddenly discovered that Bishimo is named after an actual ship that roamed the Arctic seas for many years, abandoned. Manned by ghosts. Uh, and you can go look it up. It's B-A-Y-C-H-I-M-O. Uh, but we, we took it from there. And we have a lot of, uh, a lot of playing in, in the universe. And from time to time, somebody goes, oh, no, look what I saw. But we do. We play. And uh, Beishimo is like that. Goblin's Market's like that. That's fun. I mean, and, and I was thinking about, you know, the the little goblin men selling their forbidden fruit and then the crew of the goblin dabbling in the forbidden tech. Well, see, that came later. I didn't, I didn't know they were going to be doing that when, when I named the ship. 
Ah. That happy accident. Either that or we were infected by the, the, the viral necessity of it. The boys in the back brain again. Yes. So how do you keep track? I mean, the Leyden universe is such a broad one that when I imagine trying to keep track of everything, I see basic, I, ima- I'm, I don't, I imagine that you have one wall of your house that's nothing but a huge whiteboard where you're constantly <laughs> writing on it. So how do you keep track of it? Well, um, one way we keep track of it is the characters know things. And I know people kind of edge away from me when I say that. Um, but the characters have memories um, and they, um, they, understand their own history and they understand the things that have influenced them so when I'm writing Sean he knows things that helps immensely um, he knows things he knows people he knows where, where the ship was last um, he knows who he's got to meet on the next world he's, he's going to raise and when it and it's it's funny but it actually works that way not only do we think that Sean knows stuff that we don't know Sean also knows stuff that's happened to him as a character when you're when you're writing if I'm writing from Sean's viewpoint, I connect again back to the time when I was writing or, share or, or from what the history was. Uh, often we, and another thing that we do these days, which is a wonder of the Internet, one of the ways, we, we have a whiteboard, but it's, it's, it's our fandom and it's our, our readers. And we can go, we do periodically go to uh, Facebook or to the Friends of Liad um, internal mailing list and write to them and say, please check me. Did Aunt Corrine ever say this actually or did that story not get published? And very, very often what it, what it will come in under the title of scavenger hunt. And, um, um, and we'll post it. And I, I have, I've had responses inside of um, 45 or 50 seconds from time, sometimes when I've been in the middle of writing and I go, yeah, I cannot stand up right now and go over there to pull that book because the scene is pulling together. I'll ask and go back, and go back to writing, and usually within a few minutes, somebody will be able to say, and sometimes it's, a, it's a exact, they'll say, yeah, on page 156, paragraph 3 of, of the whatever edition, there it is. Uh, now, some again, we have um, people who have uh, have their, their e-books and... Uh, They've made them searchable, and there we go. But we do have an additional memory um, in, in some cases. And in many cases, what we do is we reread the books before we go on to the next step. When I read, uh, when I was doing, <coughs> pardon me, the, the, the start of the work on getting Trade Secret, uh, the foundation for Trade Secret, read the short story, then went and read, read Balance of Trade, at the same time, because there were some other characters involved, I had to go read portions of uh, the Crystal books, the Crystal Soldier and Crystal Dragon, and then I was always ready to go reach for one of the other books if I, if I, um, if I needed to. We know the information's out there. So that's a very science fictional thing. It's like you have an external memory device that's in the cloud. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and we've, we've used that... We've actually been able to use that for far longer than, than many writers because we were uh, on, on the BBS systems and on many of the uh, years, years ahead of a good number of writers. We were uh, using the um, various net, nets. And, and, and we're also blessed that it seems like a good num- number of Leiden 
readers are also um, involved in IT and network systems, and they were early on the net also. So we had we we started building a group mind early. That's really that's good. Well, is there is there anything else you want to talk about? Well, you know, the, we we do get some odd ones that that uh, we we have have people ask if the artists have painted the likeness of uh, us into our covers, and in in most cases that hasn't happened, uh, thankfully, I guess. But um, we 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 have those kinds of questions, and uh, oddly enough. Kelly Freeze did paint me into a couple of now of um, covers, but not of my own books, because Kelly used to to when he was uh, that would have been cheating. Uh, Kelly would would uh, used to go around to conventions and he'd sketch people. And once he had sketched you at the at a convention, you were liable to show up uh, on one of his covers. So no, but people aren't 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 doing that for for us. We understand that some artists have done it with some. Um, with some writers, but none. Thankfully, um, Jethry is free. David Mattingly did that for The Office one year. He had all of us here in The Office send him our pictures, and he put them into the uh, Bain holiday card, which was the kind of modified from his cover painting for Mouse and Dragon. So if we haven't, you should. We should have been. We should have sent you that holiday card. Is but, that the one where Tony has um, um, green pseudopods? That's the one. That's the one where Tony has. She has the eye stalks and she's kind of I blue. Stalks, right. Yes. That's it. Yes. 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 That's it. <coughs> that was a good card. <laughs> I think we're about wrapped up. Then, unless you guys want to add any additional points, we'll remind everyone that Balance of Trade is out in bookstores in first of first week of November and the ebook is available now on bainebooks.com and check our website bainebooks for the author appearances thank you Sharon and Steve thank, thank you very Laura. much and now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom this portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by audible.com get the complete audiobook at audible.com now if you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's star kingdom of Manticore has entered into a simmering, low-level conflict with the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling, and on the verge, a region at the edge of its empire, rebellion is brewing. The Solarian Office of Frontier Security is in charge of keeping the peace on the verge. Brutal tactics and puppet dictatorships are par for the course for the OFS. Rebels opposed to the oppressive regimes can't hope to match the military might of the OFS without outside aid, aid they are receiving in the form of weapon drops by agents claiming to represent the Star Kingdom of Manticore but it's a ruse. These agents actually serve the shadowy Mason alignment, eugenic supremacists who wish to see the Solarian League and the Star Empire at war. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Hinka, Countess Goldpeak, commands the Royal Manticoran Navy forces in the nearby Talbot Quadrant. Goldpeak is sympathetic to the rebels, but is looking for the right place to strike a blow on their behalf. Now she has discovered a series of false promises made by Mason agents masquerading as Star Kingdom operatives. 
word of this Mason disinformation campaign, as well as shocking reports from the home system of the depth of the Mason involvement in the history of the Star Kingdom and her enemies, have reached Gulpeak's desk. So has the news of a major Salarian defeat in the Manticoran home system. It seems the moment for Goldpeak to make her move in the Talbot Quadrant is fast drawing nigh. Here is part 34 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. Chapter 25 What the hell was Kazuyoshi thinking? Kaylee Blanchard demanded. Almost a week had passed since the apocalyptic conclusion of Kazuyoshi Brewster's attack, and she and Michael Breitbach sat at a picnic table in Landing Central Park. A checkered cloth covered the table between them, and their plates were piled with potato salad, baked beans, and hot dogs. Sitting out in the open was enough to make Blanchard nervous, but she knew Breitbach was right. Security forces paid less attention to people eating picnic lunches out in the sunlight where everyone could see them than they did to people who seemed concerned with hiding in the shadows. Their current table was on a little point of land, pushing out into the lake. Directional microphones could undoubtedly hear every word they said, if anyone were suspicious enough to point one of them in their direction, but there weren't going to be any other diners near enough to overhear casual conversation. Breitbach took another bite of his hot dog, chewed with every evidence of enjoyment, swallowed, and took a swig of beer. Then he shrugged. We'll never know for sure, he said. Personally, though, I think it was just as straightforward as it looks. He shook his head. Kaz and his entire cell just plain lost too many people they cared about. He didn't kick an authorization request up the ladder because he knew damned well he wouldn't get it, and he didn't care. But, Blanchard began, eat your hot dog. Breitbach interrupted and waited until she'd obediently taken another bite. I don't say it doesn't piss me off because it does, he said then, putting ketchup on his own hot dog as he spoke. And it's going to play hell with all our plans. At the same time, I can't be too mad at him. I knew his family, you know. I wasn't supposed to, but I did. So, yeah, I understand exactly what was pushing him. I didn't know the others, but from what we've seen, they were cut from the same cloth. And don't forget, four members of his cell walked away clean. We haven't tried to contact them yet, and they're keeping their heads down just the way they ought to, but it looks to me like they're probably the ones who didn't lose family in the May riots. They helped Cos and the others get in, set up the van bombs, then got the hell out of the way. He put down the ketchup and bit into the hot dog again. You're probably right, Blanchard said after a moment. And I'm like you. I can't really blame them either, however much I wish they hadn't done it. But what do we do now? Whether we like it or not, they were effective and visible as hell. Now that they've hammered Yardlid's bastard so hard, some of the other cells are going to want to hit back too. For that matter, I'm thinking a lot of this freelance stuff we're seeing is probably our people. Probably, Breitbach agreed. And it's going to get even harder to hold them now that Yardley started arresting dangerous dissidents. He grimaced. 
Once people in general figure out how many people she and Lombroso are disappearing, it's going to get really ugly. And once the gendarmes get here, it's going to get even worse. He seemed remarkably calm about the prospect he'd just described, Blanchard thought. So you're sure now that Verrocchio is going to send them? She asked, and he snorted. After Kazuyoshi's operation? He shook his head. I think they were probably going to send them in the first place. After Kaz and his people took out a whole fucking regiment of the guard and a Sali operations manager, our Miss Zaitis for damn sure started screaming for everything she could get. If they weren't already in the pipeline, I guarantee Verrocchio is going to cough them up now, damn it. That's why I sent off another message to the Mandys three days ago. You did? She blinked at him in surprise, and he shrugged. Yardley'd already begun her crackdown, Kaylee, he pointed out. It was obvious things were only going to get worse, and I had to make a quick call. There was a fast trifecta freighter heading for Montana to follow up on the contract our first contact was sent to negotiate. Of course, that whole deal was one of Guernicke's brainstorms, so it's possible Frolov will scrub it now that she's so fortuitously retired. But in the meantime, the first freighter was off to pick up whatever the agents had been able to purchase, and we had another secret friend in her crew. He shrugged again. The opportunity wasn't likely to present itself again any time soon, so I decided to take it. I see. She regarded him steadily for several seconds. Do you think the Mantis are actually going to respond? I wish I were as confident that they're going to as I am that Verrocchio is going to, Brightbach admitted. Having said that, though, I do think it's more likely they will than that they won't. He shrugged slightly. They committed themselves to, and they have to figure that if we go down... Yardley and Lombroso are almost certain to find evidence of that in the wreckage. Having the rest of the galaxy find out they encouraged us and promised us support and then pulled the plug on us when we needed them most would hurt them badly with the independents out here on the verge. And not coming through for us wouldn't do them any good with the Sollies either. The League's going to be almost equally pissed off even when we do go down especially because they'll blame the Mantis for encouraging us in the first place. Cynical, but probably accurate, Blanchard conceded after a moment, taking another bite of her own hot dog. Don't get me wrong, Brightbach replied. I don't think it was all cynical calculation on the Mantis' part in the first place. I think they really do hate the Solarian League and OFS, and I think they find people like Lombroso and Yardley almost as morally reprehensible as we do. But let's be realistic, Kaylee. All the moral revulsion in the universe isn't going to bring somebody into conflict with something the size of the Solarian League unless there are good, solid, and pragmatic reasons to go with it. From everything I've seen, it looks like Manticore realizes it's fighting for its life, and if it's going to win... It's going to have to fight smart. That means not throwing away its claim to the moral high ground by encouraging people to revolt against regimes like Lombroso's and then just walking away. And to be honest, 
I don't care whether or not they're saints, as long as it's in their own best interest to help us take down him and that butcher Yardley. I can get behind that, Blanchard agreed with feeling. I figured you probably could. Brightbox smiled at her, but the smile faded and he shook his head. I figured you probably could, he repeated, but that doesn't make me any happier about this mess. Yardley is going on the offensive, and I think she's doing it deliberately, trying to force our hand. Push the entire resistance out into the open where she can get at it? Blanchard looked unhappy at her own suggestion, and Breitbach nodded. That, or pull it out into the open, he agreed. I'm not sure she realizes just how well organized we actually are, but even if she does, she probably figures that if she hits us hard enough, especially after Kazuyoshi hit them as hard as he did, she can goad our people into coming out where she can get at them. She's got to be pretty damn confident she's still got a lot more heavy weapons than we do, not to mention the guards' air assets, satellites, surveillance systems, and spies— I'm pretty sure her thinking's going to be that if she can only get us out in the open, she'll be able to smash us once and for all, or at least prune us back pretty damn drastically. And if she's wrong about that little calculation? Blanchard asked with an unpleasant smile. And if she's wrong, she figures she's got Usel coming in right behind her, Brightbox said, and Blanchard's smile disappeared. So what do we do? She said after a moment. For right now, we go ahead and try to keep a lid on things until we hear back from the Mantis. Breitbach finished his hot dog and picked up his beer in both hands, propping his elbows on the picnic table so he could nurse the stein properly. I'd say the odds are at least 60-40 against our being able to do that, but we've still got to try. We just plain aren't ready yet, Kaylee. And if it turns out we can't keep a lid on. Blanchard's eyes were troubled, and she shook her head. I've got to tell you, Michael, I don't think we are going to be able to. To be honest, neither do I, he said heavily. He sipped beer, his own eyes hooded, then shrugged. Neither do I, and the hell of it is that I don't really want to. I wouldn't have approved Kaz's operation if he'd asked me to, but I would have wanted to. There's nothing I want more than to see Lombroso and Yardley hanging at the ends of ropes the way they damned well deserve. So the whole time I'm standing there waving my hands and screaming, Stop, we're not ready yet. What I really want to be shouting is, Kill the bastards. He managed to keep his picnicker's expression in place, yet his voice was harsh and ugly, and his hands tightened convulsively on the stein. But my brain knows better than that, he continued in a voice which sounded more like his own. So before we do anything else, I'm going to do my damnedest to sit on the other hotheads, the hotheads just like me, until I hear something back from the mantis which doesn't change the fact that I agree with you that I'm not going to be able to in the end. 
He swallowed a little more beer, then set the stein down very neatly and precisely in front of him. If we're both right, and it looks like we're going to lose control, I really only see one thing we can do. What we can't do is allow everything we've managed to build to just come apart. And that's what's going to happen if more of our cells start doing what Kazuyoshi did. So, however unready I may think we are, we'll just have to go for it, now. Go for it? Blanchard repeated carefully, and he gave her a thin smile. The only reason we've gotten as far as we already have, further than anyone else has ever gotten against Lombroso, is that we've been organized and disciplined, Kaylee. If we lose that, Yardley breaks us even without the gendarmerie's support. And one of the most important principles of successful command I came across in all my research is that you don't give an order you know won't be obeyed. If we're going to maintain our discipline, we'll have to get out in front of our people's anger. We'll have to demonstrate to all those other Kazuyoshis that we're committed to move and that we are moving. If we do that and do it effectively, they'll get behind us and push instead of dragging us all out into yardless sights behind them. And whether I think we're ready or not, we're a hell of a lot closer to ready than anyone else has ever been. I think we've got a shot. Probably a pretty good one, and sure as hell a better one than Yardley thinks we do, against the guard and Lombroso, which really leaves only three things to worry about. Only three? Blanchard looked at him with what might have been an edge of incredulity, and he smiled. Sure. First, whether or not I'm right that we do have a shot at winning. Second, whether or not we can pull it off before the first intervention battalions get here. And third, whether or not Verrocchio and Yusa will back off and throw in their hand if we do pull it off before the gendarmes get here. And just what do you think the odds of that are? she demanded, and his smile grew thinner than a razor. Just about zero, he said softly. Which is why I really, really hope the Mantis get here before the Sollies do. Chapter 26 Well, it just keeps getting better and better, doesn't it? Albrecht Detweiler observed sourly. He tossed the document reader onto the small table beside his armchair and reached for his beer stein. He took a hefty swallow and shook his head. I suppose we should at least be grateful we found out about it before that loose warhead gold peak. It could be a lot worse, dear, his wife Evelina pointed out, looking up from her own viewer and the analysis of the pros and cons of the weaponization of mutagenic nanotech she'd been studying. Her busy crocheting hook went right on working, and her expression was calm. She always had been more philosophical about bumps in the plan than he'd been, he reflected. At least the battle itself worked out the way you had in mind. There was a certain satisfaction in her tone, Albrecht noted. Evelina had always personally despised Massimo Filaretta. She'd been willing to admit the man's competence— but she'd never been able to detach herself properly from the less savory ways in which manpower's endless supply of disposable slaves could be used to manipulate individuals like him. Despite which, she had a point. 
Filaretta's defeat had been as complete, total, and humiliating as Albrecht could have desired. Unfortunately... You're right, of course, he replied. The problem is, it could have been a lot better, too. We always counted on Beowulf supporting Manicor, as long as the Mandys lasted, anyway, and that was part of our calculus for the League's disintegration. But we'd hoped the Sollies would be able to at least give the Mannies a run for their money. In fact, they were supposed to weaken Manticore to a point that let the Havenites plow it under at last. Nouveau Paris certainly wasn't supposed to end up deciding to help the Mannies kick the crap out of the League instead. And by the time Beowulf started to figure out what was going on and began actively looking for military allies against us, Manticore wasn't supposed to be around for them to ally with much less the damned Havenites, which doesn't even consider the fact that no one was supposed to know about the Alignment's existence until we were well into Phase 3, and we're not even out of Phase 1 yet. I know, she nodded. But, like you've always said, we've known from the beginning that we were going to have to adapt and improvise, and you and the boys are pretty good at that. She smiled reflectively. They were always good at improvising to get out of trouble as kids, anyway. Yes, they were, he agreed fervently, smiling himself. But then his smile faded. They were, and they still are. But I can't say I'm happy about accelerating Houdini as much as we're going to have to. He shook his head. Ben and Colin and I have looked at this from every angle we could come up with, and we really don't see any alternative to the ballroom option. Evelina's face tightened unhappily. She started to say something, then paused and looked back down at her crocheting, visibly rethinking before she opened her mouth again. That's likely to cause problems, she said. Oh, don't I just know it. His own expression was grim and I don't blame the people who are going to have problems with it. I just don't see another way to go, now that those bastards Samoas and McBride have blown the secret. They still don't have any proof, Evelina pointed out. If they did have any, I'm sure they'd have trotted it out by now. In a way, that only restricts our options further, Albrecht said gently. If they don't have proof then they're going to be under a lot more pressure to find proof. And there aren't a lot of places they can go looking for evidence, except right here. Which is the reason I'm glad Gold Peak doesn't know about this yet. He tapped the document reader, and Evelina nodded unhappily. I suppose you're right, she sighed. I can't help thinking it's likely to cost us some collateral damage, though. Besides the obvious, I mean. I know what you meant, Albrecht agreed. And that's why Ben, Colin, and I have scheduled a meeting with all of the Inner Onion section heads tomorrow. Well, everyone but Daniel's section, since he's still stuck out at Darius. We're going to tell them what we have in mind and why we don't have a choice, and ask them to be thinking about any weak spots we need to look at. I'm going to have Sykes start a pre-screen for potential trouble spots, too. He shrugged. Frankly, I think those sorts of problems will be handleable. I don't expect to like it very much, but I think we can get through it, 
What worries me more from a pragmatic perspective is that the more we have to rush Houdini, the more likely our cleanup teams are to miss something. Which, when you come down to it, is another reason to consider the ballroom option. Nobody's going to vacuum anything out of a computer that doesn't exist anymore. Evelina nodded again, thoughtfully. All right, dear. I can see you've thought it through, and however little I may like the conclusion you've reached, I can't really argue with it. Sometimes, though, I wish your father hadn't put all of his eggs in one basket the way he did. Oh? Albrecht straightened in his chair and lowered his brows ferociously. I happen to think he came up with a pretty damn good basket myself. Stop fishing for compliments, she scolded. I think he did, too. She smiled warmly at him. But your decision to diversify with the boys and go ahead and bring them all in at the highest level early was a good one. All of them know exactly what's going on, and they're not afraid to argue with you. But despite that, you're still all alone in a lot of ways. Her smile faded into a look of sadness. I wish you'd had someone else to help carry the full responsibility when you were the boy's age. In fact, I wish you had someone else to carry it with you now. Because I think you're right about the need to push Houdini harder, and I think the decision is going to haunt you. Albrecht reached across from his chair to touch her hand gently. It is, he agreed with a crooked smile. Of course, that's true of a lot of decisions I've had to make, and it's going to be true of a lot more before this is over. But you're wrong in one respect. I may not have anyone else to carry the ultimate responsibility, but as you say, at least I've got you and the boys to help me deal with the hard jobs and the ghosts. And that helps, Evie. It helps a lot. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 34, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Ace interview host Laura Haywood Corey and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And an overflowing metaphorical basket of creamy and rich Melanti cordials, toffees, and thanks to Leaden Universe creators Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.